Welcome to Nocturnal Emotions, everybody. I am your host, Harmar Superstar, taking you on a flight of fancy into the nighttime where the feeling is so goddamn right. Thanks for joining me again, everybody. Uh, normally, I have conversations with people that I admire on this show, uh, and, you know, we get all talky and we go weird places. I've just been traveling so much uh, that I haven't had any guests on the mic or my equipment near me to do it. So uh, forgive me, but I've been experimenting with a, a thing that I've been getting a lot of positive feedback about. Uh, when I don't have guests, I find books that I, I think particularly you want to hear me read out loud. So yeah, this is the third installment of uh, LL Cool J's 1998 autobiography, I Make My Own Rules. It's been going well, and I think it's fun for people to hear me read LL Cool J's story in my voice and just imagine that it's me living these stories, because that's incredible. <laughs> and I really, uh, it really brings me to a calming place, reading these things aloud. Uh, sight reading, just cold reading is fun for me. And I, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Don't worry, guests will be coming back. I've just been all over the place, and I will continue to be throughout the fall. Uh, but please, give me some feedback. Make some comments, because uh, I hope you're enjoying this. I, I'm having a good time. And the feedback I have gotten has all been positive. So maybe I'm crazy. Maybe you guys are hating this, and you're skipping it. Don't skip it. Listen. It's something. Even just zone out on my, my voice. I'll soothe you. Uh, it's been a it's been a crazy week. I just finished up my my tour with Yeah Yeah Yeahs on the West Coast, um, and that was so fun. Uh, great, I love those guys. They like are my favorite band to see. They change up their set every night. Are incredible. Go catch them if you can. They're coming to Philly September seventeenth, uh, Barclays Center in Brooklyn, which is a huge thing, huge deal. Uh, September nineteenth. So uh, yeah, if you're on the East Coast, check those out. Um, see them where you can. And uh, you know that all led me into a few days hanging out in LA with a bunch of old friends, um, going to FYF Fest, which was magical, so fun. It's like Coachella Junior, but it's uh, easy and accessible for LA residents or anyone around. You can just take the train downtown, be at Mini Coachella all day, and then just go home, go to the bar, do whatever afterwards. The bill was amazing. My Bloody Valentine, Beach House, uh, the Melvins were one of the best things I'd seen. Charles Bradley, if you don't have his record, if you've not seen him live, please, man. This guy is living James Brown. His band is tight as hell. Daptone guys. Uh, just, oh, man, check it. It was so, so fucking inspirational. The guy can do crazy dick dances. Uh, and when you see a 60-year-old man doing dick dances and owning a crowd of mainly white teenagers... You know, something's going crazy awesome there. The chemistry was insane and awesome, and I want to relive that again. Anyway, FYF Fest next year. Travel to it. Get a hotel room downtown. Just fucking do it up. You're going to love it. Um, yeah, so I'm back. Everyone's talking about goddamn Miley Cyrus and her twerking. I just watched that clip. Man, all I got to say is that tongue thing that she's doing is fucking disgusting and I hate it, and it happens so often that you're like, who is advising her to do this? There's got to be someone behind the curtain being like, yeah, yeah, no, more with the tongue, Miley. No, the tongue is perfect, and that, it's so gross, dude. It's disgusting. Stop it, Miley. Stop listening to whoever's telling you what you're doing. Fucking, also, guys, we're all adults. Don't watch the VMAs. I had to watch the clip to know what I'm making fun of, but otherwise, come on. Come on. This is a show for children. It's a show for children who love pop stars. Let's leave it alone. Um, or, you know, don't hate on it because you're part of the problem. <laughs> Whatever. I do it all the time. I'm just preaching to the choir here, and uh, and I do the same shit, so, so whatever. 
Don't mind me, just ranting. Um, but anyway, without any further ado, here we go. Installment three, the tale of LL Cool J. I make my own rules with Karen Hunter, helping him out. Uh, check it out. Some more chapters. We get into some uh, some fights with giant wrestlers. Uh, LL's thoughts on drugs. So many things. Uh, enjoy. Love you guys. Snakes, bureaucracy, and bullshit. Russell and Rick handed me my first check for signing with Def Jam. It was an advance for my sales for $50,000. Yo, $50,000 for rapping? All they wanted me to do was produce an entire album. Hell, I'd been writing forever. I had suitcases and drawers full of raps, good raps. I had enough material to do five albums, and they were willing to pay me. And pay me that much? It bugged me out. All I knew was it sure beat the only other job I ever had as a delivery boy for the New York Post. That was the worst. For something like $2.50 a day, I had to put up with a whole lot of aggravation. I couldn't make out half the addresses on those tiny-ass labels. In the dark, at whatever time in the morning I was supposed to get up, people were rude, nasty. One time, I was selling papers on the street, and this guy stopped at a light. I gave him his paper, and as the light was turning green, he just took off. He jerked me for a quarter. I couldn't believe it. You can guess how long <laughs> that job lasted. One day I just got fed up and threw all the papers I had in the sewer. But this rap thing was something else. I couldn't believe they were paying me so much money to do something I really loved doing. Something I would do for free. I remember holding that first check for 50 grand and I was thinking I'd hit the lottery. LL, I'm bad. Other rappers know. When I enter the center, they say, yo, yo, there we go. My paycheck's large. My Bogart in charge. Not a punter or hunter from a raccoon lodge. I had never seen so many zeros before. I started thinking of all the things I wanted to buy. I bought my mom's Mercury Cougar. I got myself some gold chains, and of course, I bought plenty of Kangles. I spent a lot of time in Revel Knox hats on the Avenue, Jamaica Avenue, Queens. My look had to be right, and that started with the hat. Calling all cars, calling all cars. Be on the lookout for a tall, light-skinned brother with dimples. Wearing a black Kangol sweatsuit, gold chain, and sneakers. Last seen on Farmer's Boulevard, headed east. Alias LL Cool J. He's bad. I used to get up every day and begin my ritual. Before I went outside, I got dressed, combed my hair, and looked in the mirror, and then put on my hat, which was a process in and of itself. I would hold it over my head and slide it on real slow. Just right. And I would look in the mirror and be like, yeah, now I'm Superman. Mentally, I wasn't right until I had on my hat. As hats started getting played out, I would right be, in, I would be right up in Revel Knox looking for the latest style. I changed with the times. Basically, I was doing with my hats what Buster Rhymes is now doing with his clothes. I was making a statement. And the more people wondered and questioned me about why I wore hats, the more pleasure I got out of wearing them. I used to bug people out. One time I was in the Dominican public at Lior Cohen's wedding. He's the current president of Def Jam, and he was like a senior vice president back in the day. So I'm swimming in the ocean, body surfing, and this humongous wave comes and takes me under, and my kangle comes off. Yo, it was like everybody who worked at Def Jam ran out of the hotel, stopped sunbathing, come back from the golf course to gather up on the beach to see if I would emerge from the ocean without my hat. Sorry, folks. 
I would have drowned before I came out of the water without my hat on. While I held my breath underwater, I searched with my hand for my kangle. I found it and pulled it down tight and swam to shore. I just walked to the hotel, which was right off the beach, with this dripping wet kangle. Everybody was cracking up, but I was still Superman. MCs can't win. I make them rust like tin. They call me Jaws. My hat is like a shark's fin. In addition to buying hats, I had to make sure my gear was correct. Even before I made a record, I dressed the part. Sergio Valente or colored Lee jeans, the shell top Adidas or Pumas, La Tigre jackets, and of course, the Kangles. I even had a pair of fake gazelles. Remember them joints? By the time I got money to afford them, the real ones, they were, they were played out. But I wasn't. I wasn't. I was looking good all the time. Within a few months... I got another check for 50 grand for royalties from I Need a Beat. The dough was rolling in, but with the bait comes sharks. Advisors, managers, accountants came and went, all there to help me with my newfound wealth. And some of these homeboys definitely have too much fun with the money. Early on, I'm sitting across the table from one advisor, and he's saying, Whatever you want, you can have. I said, I want a Mercedes. That was the car that said, Yo, I'm the man. And I wanted one, but I really couldn't afford it, not after taxes. This man said, you'll get your Mercedes. What he should have said is, son, I know you're making a lot of money now, but there are no guarantees in this business. Why don't you put half of this in the bank and make sure your taxes are taken care of? Get yourself a nice, moderately priced car. The Mercedes can wait until the next album. Take care of your future first. About the only smart thing I did with my money during those early years was some of my first advance. I had also made about $8,000 doing shows. I gave that money to my mother. I don't know what happened to the second $50,000. It was just gone. I should have been advised on how to spend it. Of all that money, only the $8,000 I gave my moms to watch survive. People have a tendency to look at young athletes and young entertainers who make a whole lot of money and then lose it as all stupid. But when you're an 18 or 19-year-old kid hooked up to a middle-aged, sophisticated businessman who have been through myriad scenarios involving money, you don't have a chance. And I saw crooked lawyers and crooked accountants early in my career. There are always people just hanging around trying to skim some off some of the cream you're making. Some of those accountants and business managers can play some pretty devious ways to get your money. The young and up-and-coming star is defenseless. They play games with royalties and expenses, get kickbacks on your deals, overcharge you in ways you can never imagine, and they're smooth. They do this for a living. But back then, I didn't know anything about these games, nor did I care as long as I was able to get my Mercedes, convertible no less. The vocalization techniques I employ, the voice of my shadow could take a toy boy, the injection of bells into this beat, the results enough energy to amputate your feet, greater insulator, microphone dominator, my name is Cool J, manipulator, innovator, connoisseur, I'm sure my percussion will excite, these bells are gonna rock, rock all night, rock the bells. The album kept selling and the money kept rolling in. Rock the Bells, another hit off radio, blew up like the world trade. I mean, this record debuted at number five on World Billboard's top R&B singles chart, which for a rap single was unheard of. Billboard wasn't even charting rap by that back then. By the way, Grandma helped me with the hook to this one. It needs more bells and drums, she said. Platinum. It took just a few months for it to go gold, and in less than a year, Rock, Rock the Bells went platinum. One million copies. Mo money. That song is still making money for me. Foxy Brown, a female rapper on Def Jam, features a remake of Rock the Bells on her last album, Il Na Na. 
A lot of people think it's a tribute to me, by the way. Even she thought she was honoring me, but it isn't. I was supposed to record that version for my greatest hits album that came out in 1996, but all this was going on during renegotiations of my contract with Def Jam, and they ended up giving it to Foxy to give me a little wake-up call. I mean, they own part of the publishing rights to it. I'm not mad at them for it. Both sides were playing hardball at the time, and that's the way it goes in business, but... If I had known to hold on to my publishing rights back in the day, it never would have happened. No hard feelings. Back then, though, I didn't care about publishing in points because all I was seeing was the pesos, the moolah, the cream. I was spending like crazy. I bought a red Audi 5000. That was one of my favorite cars. In fact, I coined the phrase Audi 5000, which means I'm out. <laughs> it's amazing to me the expression is still used today. I hear it all the time. And that car still sits in my grandmother's backyard almost like a plaque or trophy or something i was feeling big one day and brought my grandmother a mink coat i bought myself one too i had the biggest gold chains a neck could hold i'd start working out around this time so my neck could hold a few pounds i would drive around manhattan in a limousine with my boys just for the hell of it drinking expensive champagne like moe and crystal yeah i was 18 and that was the legal drinking age then and the women yo i didn't even have to open my mouth and they were flocking hell even the guys who hung out with me would get mad play. Lots of ladies. No sooner had the Richards and the fame and radio dwindled than I, I set a new mark. In August 1987, I Need Love dropped and put me in a whole other category as far as rappers were concerned. It was the very first rap ballad, which was different from the bravado and hard, rough style many, many rappers had adopted. LL Cool J moved from hard as hell to bona fide ladies' man. That was a real risk for me then. I could have come off as soft, but obviously the listeners didn't think so. The record, sales, and money started rolling in. Ironically, the inspiration for that record was real. Before I wrote it, I think I really did need love. And this time I was feeling a lot of emptiness. I mean, there were always people around, groupies and my crew, but I was empty inside. I had this tune in my head for days. I hummed it for Bobcat and the engineer and they made a track for it some guy came in the studio and said ah sounds like christmas music we argued back and forth on whether or not i should do it but i needed to do this song there was never a rap song that sounded like that and i went home sat in my room and i wrote it when i'm alone in my room sometimes i stare at the wall and in the back of my mind i hear my conscience call telling me i need a girl who's so sweet as a dove for the first time in my life i see i need love that was real personal, know what I mean? Think about it. Giggling about the games that I had played with many hearts and I ain't saying no names. That song came from the heart. I was only in the rap game a couple of years, but I had already made the circuit of groupies and was getting a little out of control. I felt like the ladies only wanted to be with LL Cool J and nobody was really feeling Todd. I wasn't even sure if I was. I met her that Easter Sunday, 1987. I was 19 and full of myself. She treated me like, so what? She was one of the first women to do that, and I liked it. I still do. She was this tiny girl wearing a lemon-colored sweater, sweater set with a long skirt. She had on these alligator pumps. I remember looking at her and thinking, she dresses like a grown woman. She was spending Easter Sunday with their aunt, who lived around the way. My man Jerry was there too. I hung out with Jerry writing rhymes and stuff. When my mother asked me to go to the store for her after dinner, I stopped by to check Jerry on the way. There was Simone. He introduced me to her and Simone's cousin Dina, 
who's now engaged to marry Carl Connie, one of the top hip-hop clothing makers in the country. Simone wanted me to wear Carl's clothes back in the day, but I had my own style then, with the kangles and the tight sweatpants. I wasn't feeling that baggy jean look back then. So Simone was standing in the driveway, and Dina says, Who that? pointing at me. But I only made eye contact with Simone. I thought she was cute. Real cute. She was a little lighter than me, and she had these tiny features. But it's funny, even before I thought she was cute on the outside, I saw her inside first, if that makes any sense. I connected with her, inside before outside. She looked up, and I looked in her eyes, and we communicated without speaking. Then when I took a step back and saw the outside, I thought, damn, she is cute. But what got me was her voice. As little as she was, she had a voice like a trucker, all deep and raspy. I thought it was sexy. All I knew was that I had never felt that way before, and I was curious. So I told her, yo, you should come around sometime. <clears throat> She said, you come around. She was sassy, too. I loved it. She asked me if I had a number, and we exchanged numbers as we walked back to my mother's cougar. I didn't call her right away. Maybe I thought I was being cool, making her wait. When I did call her, I thought I had a wrong number. She said, hello? And it comes out in this deep, heavy voice. I was like, is that you? Yo, you got a deep voice. We just joked about it and started talking and seemed to stay on the phone for hours. I was already hooked. It was so different for me. It was like plugging in spiritually. <clears throat> I can't define that as love at first sight because love is strange. The word love is even taking on different meaning to me. People have the tendency to love things that are bad for them. Is addiction love? You love the feeling, the addiction, the lust, but is that love? I think love is a chemical reaction caused by the brain. I think it's like strobe lights dancing around in your brain, creating this euphoric feeling inside. It's a trick that Mother Nature uses to get men and women to reproduce. I do think, though, that true feelings and true connections are real, so I think a word like bonded is a better description of what I felt when I got to know Simone. Bonded says something more than love. Every woman wants to hear those three magic words, but I think I'm bonded with you is more powerful. I hear people say, I love my car, but if you hear someone say, I'm bonded with my car, you look at them a little funny. Sure, I now tell my kids and my wife I love you because there's a general understanding of what that means and people expect it, but what I mean is I'm bonded to you. I was bonded to Simone from the jump. Around her, all my insecurities left me. She was the first woman who I took my hat off in front of. <laughs> Not for a while, though. You can believe that I never even took my hat off with a woman. Can you believe that? But Simone made me feel good about myself. She was the first woman to tell me my lips were sexy, and she liked the way I licked them. <laughs> my mother used to get on me all the time about licking my lips. Todd, stop licking your lips. That looks so nasty. But I think I got the habit from her. My mother licked her lips the same way. So I was a little self-conscious about licking my lips before Simone. When she said it was sexy and it looked good when I did it, I started doing it more. And when I took to the mic on stage, the first thing I would do was look out in the audience and lick my lips. The girls would go wild. She was also the one who told me I had a nice butt. And I started wearing tight sweatpants to show it off. She understood me. We spoke the same language. We connected. We still do. Simone was going through her own thing when I met her. She was dealing with her mother who was addicted to heroin. That situation bonded us even more. I had my demons that I was trying to deal with, and she had hers, so 
it wasn't as much I like you, you like me. It was more like I can really relate to your pain and you can relate to mine. Her pain was really in sync with mine. Hers was current and physical. My pain was in the past and mental. My pain had left scars, emotional scars that I was trying to suppress, and she had emotional scabs that were constantly being reopened. I could tell she was embarrassed the first time I went over to her house. It was a scene she had probably been avoiding. She and I went on a double date with my ex-best friend Brian Latour and her cousin Sloan Pyle. We went to Brian's Brown 98, which he called the Brown Mobile. Simone and I went, got in the back. We got Chinese food and a bottle of Ryunite, Ryunite wine. Okay. Yeah, I know. Cheap, right? I suggested we go back to Simone's house to eat. As soon as we got in the front door, her mother came down the stairs in a tattered bathrobe looking strung out. My man Brian looked at her like she was crazy. I could tell Simone was embarrassed, but I was like, whatever. Didn't faze me a bit. I shook her hand and said hello, and we went on about our business. Afterwards, I guess Simone expected me to say something about her mother. I never did. I loved her mother. I mean, I could relate. So it was Simone who finally brought up the subject. We were sitting in my mother's cougar, chilling, and when she told me her mother was a heroin addict, I, I said, So what? We all got problems with our families. We all got problems. After that, I told her about my father shooting my mom's and my grandfather, how Roscoe used to beat me. I could never condone, condemn somebody for having an addiction or being an addict. I can definitely relate. I was in no position to judge. I had my own addictions, which I'll tell you about later. I'm sure people will be tempted to judge me for them too, but I hope not. I can't be judgmental. I, I don't laugh at people who have one leg. I don't park in handicapped spots, and I don't judge drug addicts. When I see a prostitute, I see a human being who might just be caught up. I don't see a piece of garbage. When I see a drug dealer, I see a guy who might just be trying to get by. You have some drug dealers who hustle because they want to have it all. They want the cars and the girls. And you have the drug dealers who hustle because they have kids to feed and they need the money or they want their mothers to have steak for dinner once a week. There are a lot of reasons why people do certain things. I try not to judge anyone. When Simone shared her feelings that day, I only grew closer to her. I saw vulnerability through her toughness, and that made her even more cool to me. It's like, you know somebody's tough, and you can't walk all over them, but then you see that there's something tender also about them, and you like that too. Simone eventually became my first steady girlfriend. She even came with me on the first leg of the Walking, walking with a Panther tour. I brought her on the stage in Miami when I did I Need Love. Man, did all the girls in the front row look mad. <laughs> But when I first met her, I was still doing my own thing. Walking with the Panther was a huge success. The tour was sold out everywhere, and the album went triple platinum. Only Run DMC and the Beastie Boys were doing sales like that. At the time, Public Enemy had burst onto the scene and created a movement within rap, social consciousness. Before them, Grandmaster Flash was portraying street life in their raps like The Message, but P.E. and KRS-One were talking about taking action. Fight the power. 911 as a joke flew right in the face of government and racism. Their rap spoke to blacks across the country who were feeling oppressed and it gave them more than a, this is where you are. P.E. was saying, this is how you get out. That whole movement talked about the black man educating himself and uplifting himself. Both messages I was with, totally. I even had a couple of songs on my album like that, but people were just not into my vibe. I tried, but the songs that hit were the ones talking about how many women I could do and how many gold chains I had and how bad I was. 
I was rapping about champagne, silk shirts, cars, jewelry, girls. I'd become the antichrist of rap. I was selfish. I was egocentric. People felt like I was not being honorable and that I did not represent where the black community should be heading. It's funny. The very thing I was catching flack for then is the exact same thing that many in rap are embracing now. Champagne, designer clothes, cars, sex. So we've come full circle. And despite all the controversy, walk with a panther sold millions. This week's episode is brought to you once again by Earthquaker Devices. Uh, friends of mine from Kent, Ohio, who are uh, on the international scene as far as, uh, you know, making uh, compression, distortion, delay, fuzz, modulation, octave, overdrive to run your guitar through or sing through, just to get weird to in general. They make quality devices, quality pedals for you to rock out with. And uh, now, if you use the offer code nocturnal when you check out on their website at earthquakerdevices.com uh, you get 15% off not just 10 but 15% off your order and uh, trust me they make some amazing amazing pedals that you want to check out so do yourself a favor play guitar in your bedroom and play it through an earthquaker device or two EarthquakerDevices.com backslash Nocturnal for 15% off. Support them. Support my friends. Support some people that are making great things possible. Booyah, Earthquaker Devices. Back to the show. Boom. Spiritual blackout. Believing my own hype. I'm in a stretch limousine, gliding through Times Square. I'm wearing a black mink coat and have an ice bottle of Moet in my hand. I'm coming from the American Music Awards at Radio City, where I just performed. One of the first rap acts to perform at one of the most famous concert halls in the country, if not the world. I guess you could say I had made it. I had back-to-back -back platinum albums, was working on a third, and I had a million dollars in the bank. And I had a $15,000 ring that spelled out my name across four, diamond, four fingers and diamonds. It was fat. Can you believe that? That was so much money I couldn't even wrap my brains around that figure and fully comprehend it. Damn, I got a million dollars in the bank, I kept saying over and over to myself. It wasn't the money I was bugging over. It was the power that comes with the money. I never rap for money. I rap for the power. It was the power to walk into any car dealership in America and Buy a car, cash, on the spot. Yo, what a rush. Cars were one of my vices back in the day. I bought cars like most people buy shoes. I had one to fit every occasion. I went into a Porsche dealership on Long Island on a whim. Bought a black 911, $72,000. I just called my accountant and had him wire the money. In Maryland, on tour during Bigger and Deffer, I went into a BMW dealership, saw a charcoal gray M3 that I liked, and bought it on the spot. I drove it back to New York. When the tour stopped in Los Angeles, I bought a $100,000-plus white Mercedes convertible. It was custom-made, the only one of its kind. I'd gotten the top-cut special. It had the white leather seats. White piping, black piping, white on white, chrome rims, gold grill. It had the ill system. You know, the sound system had to be straight in my car. It was nothing for me to spend ten to $12,000 on a system. 
Back then, I needed to feel my music, and so did everybody else. I loved that car. Right after I bought it, I wanted to show it off, so I took Simone out to Fat Burgers in it. After we ate, I came out ready to put the top down and look fly. I slid the key into the ignition and turned. Nothing happened. The car wouldn't start. Ain't that something? But I deserved that. At one time, I had like 12 cars spread out like five different locations. My mom's, my grandmother's, my house in Long Island, my condo in Jamaica Estates. And I wasn't just buying cars for myself. I eventually gave my man Brian Latour the Mercedes convertible. He was my manager and best friend back in the day. I bought my dad a Jeep Cherokee, and I bought my mom's another car. I just had car after car. Yo, the attention and just being able to drive a fly European sports car were just incredible for me. The money I spent was about bravado and feeling like a man. I had the super big screen TVs, sound system in my house with speakers hooked up in every room, even the bathroom. I was living. But I was living a lie. It looked like I was on top of the world, but all the money in the world means nothing if you don't have control over your life. And I didn't have control over anything. I had all these things, but I was pissing away my soul in the process. My success became overwhelming, not just for me, but for my family. My moms who'd been trying to keep track of things didn't know the ins and outs of the record business, so she broke down and called my father, who would once run his own business and was supposed to be very good with money, despite his obvious shortcomings. I know that must have been a really tough call for her, considering their past. She had made a similar call before I went to Florida because I was wild and then getting into all kinds of trouble. Why should she suffer through it by herself? It was only fair that my father should share some of the responsibility and some of the pain. She must have felt that I needed not just a man, but my father in my life. And I was feeling that way, too. I think most kids who grow up without their fathers feel that way sooner or later. It doesn't matter how rotten or how much of a low life a child's father is. A kid wants to point to a man and say, that's my daddy. It's a feeling that you belong to somebody, that you have an origin, that you exist. I felt I needed my father, despite the bad things he had done to my family. All I could remember was the time he brought, bought me a puppy on all the backyard barbecues. The first time my mother tried to send me to stay with him in Los Angeles for summer, he said he was too busy to take me in. He told her to send me to stay with his brother in Tampa instead, but this time I was stacking some cash, and there was all smiles, ready to be a daddy. There he was. He wasn't too busy to become my manager. In the beginning, he was very helpful. He was looking out and teaching me a lot of things I didn't know. He was telling me how people were ripping me off. He taught me that rap was a business. It's called show business for a reason. Look at the word business compared to the word show. It's much longer, right? That's for a reason. There's a lot more business than show and show business, and don't forget it. My father started touring with me after Walk with a Panther drop. It was also about that time that I was becoming more and more depraved and doing some really wild things. Someone at Simone had given birth to our son, Najee, and I was running away from my responsibility and bugging out. My father didn't help. He told me things like, Simone is just trying to trap you, and I listened. He was still off the hook. He liked to smoke weed, get into fights, and curse people out, and I thought it was fun. Hell, I just wanted to have a relationship with my father, and I really didn't care. I wanted to love him and have him love me and take care of me. When I was around him, I had that little boy with the puppy all over again. He used to get us in all kinds of trouble on tour with his temper. That was something I definitely inherited from him. One time we were in Miami, and he and I got into a fight in our hotel room over something stupid. I don't even remember what it was. We ended up fist-fighting each other, but afterwards we went downstairs to hang out with my boys as if nothing had happened. We would be fighting one minute, friends the next. 
When something went down, though, no matter what we were feeling towards each other, we had each other's back. During one of the wildest fights I was ever involved in, my pops was right there. We're walking through a lobby of a hotel with Roberto, a Cuban guy from Miami who was showing us around, and my man Chuck. Near the front desk, there's a South African wrestler standing at the phone booth in the lobby talking. When he saw us, he, he said into the phone, I gotta hang up. A couple of just walked in. Roberto said, did you just hear what he just said? And I looked at the guy and said, what? He looked at me and then Roberto said, you don't want to mess with me. He was a seven feet tall and he weighed well over 300 pounds, pushing 400. I'm looking at him, sizing him up. I was ready for a challenge. And my pops, who was 6'2", about 250 pounds, and usually down for whatever, looked at this guy and warned me not to mess with him. But the wrestler thought my pops had said something to him, so he rushed my pops, jacking him up against the elevator. Then the elevator doors opened, and my pops fell into the elevator with the wrestler on top of him. My pops started yelling, Man, get this motherfucker off me so I can kill him! My pops was mad. Seeing Red, didn't he didn't care that a seven-foot monster was on top of him. I ran... Started kicking the wrestler in the back and the butt. I started to kick him in the nuts from the back. I finally struck gold, and he stopped choking my pops. Then he turned to me with a sinister grin and laughs. Started chasing me. I ran through the hotel lobby around this big palm tree and stuck my foot out just as a guy came around the corner. Blam. He went down. But he got up and continued chasing me. <laughs> I ran down a hallway past the elevators, and my kangle flew off. You know I'm mad now. My hat is off in public. I hadn't had a haircut in a while, and I had this big afro underneath. I was embarrassed with all this wild hair hanging out. While this is going on, my man Chuck was just watching and laughing. It must have been pretty hilarious. Then Roberto got into the flow and started chasing the guy. My pops, who was waiting for the guy to come around the corner again, grabbed one of those little ramps they used for handicapped people to get up the stairs. And When homeboy came around the bend, my pops slammed him with it. The guy was dazed and bewildered, but didn't go down. In two seconds, he shook it off and was on again. Stopped. Did the trip move again, and he fell down again. My pops picked up a rock from the little garden area and started beating the guy in the head. But homeboy was unbelievable. Like my pops was a fly on an elephant. And it didn't phase him a bit. While my pops was still hitting him, the wrestler takes him to the ground and starts jacking him up. I jumped on the guy's back, and I started punching him in the head and to get him off my pops but he was handling both of us roberto jumped in and this dude took care of roberto too chuck was still standing there laughing homeboy shook us off like fleas and we ran he started chasing us again past the glass front doors i pick up a rock and i'm ready to throw it but i see those glass doors there my father yells don't just stand there throw the shit so i threw it glass shattered all around the guy and he took he shook that off too he was bleeding and laughing and out of breath Took three of yous. Yeah, took three of yous, he said. My grandfather used to tell me that the wrestling on television wasn't real. He should have been down in Miami that day. <laughs> Finally, hotel security, we were watching, the whole time came out. The cops showed up, too. They shot a gun in the air to chill us out. Meanwhile, there during the commotion, Homeboy disappeared upstairs and brought back three other wrestlers. Jimmy Superfly Snooker, Jigsaw Haystacks, and another guy to do all of us in. Lucky the cops had shown up, I guess. My father got arrested and the cops let homeboy go. Pops was in handcuffs, battered and disgusted, his shirt ripped up. Chuck, who hadn't bothered to get involved, had somehow lost his bracelet during the ruckus after the fight and was looking for it. Cops telling, kept telling, telling him to get back, but he was determined to find it. So they handcuffed and arrested him, too. We had to bail them out a couple hours later, but nothing came of it after that. Yeah, my pops and I did some crazy things together. I was known for my practical jokes, especially on tour. 
He'd be right there laughing, except when the joke was on him. One time he was sleeping on the bus with his mouth open. I took a straw and filled it with hot sauce and slid it in his mouth and ran away. He woke up coughing and cursing. It was hilarious. I got Brian Latour good one time when he was sleeping. I took a boombox, turned to this heavy metal rock station, waited for the precise moment when he was looking angelic in the middle of sleep and blasted it to peak volume in his ear. He must have jumped about 15 feet in the air. I was bananas. I'd hit people working with us with buckets of water when they were coming out of their hotel rooms, getting ready to go out. <laughs> oh, they got me back, though. You know, once or twice. One time they left me on the tour bus by myself. I was asleep, and nobody can wake me up when I'm in good sleep. They shut off the bus. We were down south somewhere, maybe Louisiana. It was summertime, at least 100 degrees. The bus was one of those hydraulic buses, so nothing worked when it was shut off. In other words, the air conditioning stopped working and you couldn't open the windows. And I'm in this bus cooking. The only reason I woke up was because I couldn't breathe. I had sweated all the way through my, all the way through my clothes, even my hat. I stormed to the hotel. Everyone was in a room playing cards. When they saw me, they all broke into a laugh. My pops, who was smoking a joint, looked up from his card game and said, You rested? Another time we had this bus with sleeping compartments, it was fly. But someone put itching powder in my bunk before I went to bed that night. I was scratching everywhere for about 11 hours. That was a good one. The one person who never could take a joke was my man, Cut Creator. Jay will pretend like he can take it, but that brother gets mad quick. If you even try something on him. If he starts snapping on him, he'll get upset, especially if you talk about the crunch on the back of his neck. <laughs> Just kidding, Jay. I love you, baby. So far, the most far, so for the most part, we didn't bother Jay. Plus, he was too damn big to get him mad. Cornell was the most fun to tour with just because he was so funny to look at. Plus, he always had something smart to say. But Cornell really meant well. That's why he was my man. He was a true friend. My pops, on the other hand, was constantly burning bridges and getting into beefs with people wherever he went. Conflict was his middle name. Back then, I thought that was funny. He was my role model, but being around him taught me to have your own role model, and that being a father is about more than supplying the sperm. You have to be there for your kids. You have to share positive things and nurture them. He didn't, he didn't do that often enough for me. The one time he tried to act like a father, even that was ironic. I was performing in Virginia with some local acts, and Roscoe showed up out of the blue to see me. After the show, he apparently came on stage looking for me, and he ran right into my pops. The two men who called themselves my father are standing face to face. I can't look back and see my pops as an angry man, but I didn't view him the same way I view Roscoe. I do remember the good times with him. Despite the craziness, I don't see him as a monster. He was a good, small businessman. I just think he got in a little over his head with my business, and perhaps families should never work so close together. Roscoe was a different story. He was lazy and didn't work much at all. Where I can see strength in my father, I can only see weakness in Roscoe. He was like a weasel, a get-over artist, looking to take advantage wherever he could. So the standing face-to-face -face backstage, my pops looks Roscoe up and down and says, What do you want? Roscoe says, how you doing? I'm LL's father. These two had never met before, and I don't even know if my father knew Roscoe existed, but all he said back was, get the fuck out of here, and he literally picked Roscoe up and tossed him out of the backstage door. Pops told me this story with pride, and at the time I was loving him for that, but I have to be real for my, with myself now. Our relationship was all business, and not very good business at that. What I didn't know then was that while he was busy keeping people away from me, warning me about this one ripping me off, that one stealing, and this accountant not paying my taxes, he wasn't taking care of my business properly. He wasn't 
making sure my taxes got paid. He was ringing up personal stuff on corporate credit cards, and he was, wasn't looking out for my money as others around were stealing from me. I was so into my own world and acting ill that I didn't realize just how out of control everything was. It seemed like I had all this money I needed. My career seemed to be doing well. I was making platinum albums. My tours were sold out. I just found out that I would have a role in the movie Toys with Robin Williams and Joan Cusack and directed by Barry Levinson. But it was the sunshine before the storm. With all the fame, the good times, the money, the jewelry, the life I had craved for so long, I thought I was flying high but I was really drowning. Hey guys, in addition to streaming Nocturnal Emotions at Earwolf.com, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Nocturnal Emotions fans have written some great iTunes reviews for the show, and I really appreciate the feedback. The Hump reviewed the show saying, compelling, fun, funny, warm, personable. Thanks. Sean Rush, we all trust his opinion. He wrote, I was hypnotized by Harmar Superstar in 2003. Now there's a podcast. Make it one of your home podcasts, which means listen every goddamn week. And if it's on Earwolf, you know it has to be good. Paraphrased, I added goddamn. Sorry, Sean. So please rate the show, leave a review, and subscribe on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening to Nocturnal Emotions with me, the one, the spectacular Harmar Superstar. Boom! Evil Chemistry. Inside my head, my voice sounded like Alvin from the Chipmunks. Everything around me was racing at like 10,000 miles an hour, and so was I. I was wired. Sweat poured from my body like a rain shower, and I couldn't remember my lyrics. I was on tour for Bigger and Deffer somewhere in Los Angeles, and all I could think about was getting off stage as fast as I could. When Cut Creator did his final scratch, I rushed backstage and just threw up all over the floor. I had dropped some mescaline right before my performance, and I was sick as a dog. It was the first and last time I ever performed high. Drugs are prevalent in entertainment. Seems to go with the lifestyle. The money, the fast cars, the jewelry, and the women. There are even some who feel they can't perform without some weed or a hit of cocaine. That wasn't me. But I did enough in my day to know that drugs are not the answer. I didn't get into a deep, dark drug world, as you can see, but I did try things. I experimented with cocaine, angel dust, even mescaline. My first introduction to drugs was around when I was starting to get into rap. I experimented with drugs the ways kids in the movie Porky's or Animal House experimented with drugs. I started off smoking a little weed with my peeps from around the way. Yeah, yeah, I even inhaled a couple of times. <laughs> it was something everybody was doing, and I guess not much has changed. Kids are still smoking weed around the way. We used to get the El Producto cigars, the real cheap ones from the corner and store, and make blunts. I never bought the stuff myself, but somebody always had a nickel bag. Around my way, you could get it as easy as buying a pack of gum. When I got older, we would sometimes spice up the blunts with coke or angel dust. I wasn't into sniffing coke, probably because I was afraid of dying, but I would smoke just about anything. One time I was hanging out with the boys and we smoked some dust outside a movie theater somewhere in Jamaica, Queens. We were just sitting there throughout the whole movie, punching each other in the face and laughing. I didn't even know what was playing because we really didn't look at the movie. I would punch my man next to me and he would laugh, Ha ha, you hit me. And then he would swing a left hook and land on my jaw and I'd bust out laughing. Back and forth, this went down the row. That's the kind of stupid shit drugs make you do. The next day I'm walking around with a swollen face and a cut lip. I wasn't laughing then. I was just looking stupid with lumps all over my face and poison in my system. Drugs are funny like that. While you're doing them, you think that you're cool. 
After you feel after you afterward, you feel like an asshole. You look in the mirror and see your face is all lumped up and greasy, and realize it's not so fun. Maybe that's why some people stay safe, stay high, so they never stop feeling cool, so they never have to see the lumps. To this day, I can't understand why I tried drugs. I had such a negative reaction to them from living with Roscoe. On any given day, I would come home from school and walk in the kitchen. There'd be a pile of cocaine on a mirror on the table. Or I'd be in my room, and he'd come in smoking a joint, and then he'd beat me after he finished. So I associated with drugs with bad things and bad behavior. But, like most kids, I had to find out for myself firsthand. I'm just glad I was able to walk away from it. I can relate to kids getting caught in peer pressure. I never wanted to feel out of place. I always wanted to be cool. And smoking weed was cool back then. For a lot of people, it still is, unfortunately. This is not an easy subject for me to talk about because I did some things I'm not very proud of. Now I travel around to schools telling kids to stay in school and stay away from negative influences like drugs. I mean, I mean every word. But I can't lie and say I didn't do drugs because I did do drugs. But that definitely doesn't make it right. And I do believe kids should stay away from them. I'm just thankful that I didn't get hooked and I didn't die by the grace of God. So I hope you all know I'm being straight up when I tell you to stay away from drugs because you may not be so fortunate. There was even a time when I thought seriously about getting, getting involved in the drug game. Growing up in Queens, there were guys in the neighborhood who were large. There was Fat Cat, Supreme, Tony Montana. He owned an entire block of Queens with a grocery store, a little nightclub, and a fly sneaker store. He drove around in a black 560 Mercedes-Benz with gold trim. When he got tired of driving, he was driven around in a Rolls Royce that had a Nintendo set in the back. He had a fat house in Dick's Hills, Long Island, where mostly well-to-do white people lived. It was more of a mansion than a house with a swimming pool, servants, and high-tech security system. He had gold fronts, teeth that is, with diamond studs spelled out his initials, and he was only 21. Tommy was a drug dealer, but to every kid in Queens, he was a hero. All the dealers from around the way had status. They represented everything poor people didn't have and wanted so much. Money, clothes, cars, property. They were living the African-American dream. Working the BMW, the black man's wish. You know what I mean? I used to roll with a guy from Uptown, Big B. He was Mount Vernon's answer to Tommy Montana and others. He had the jewelry and the cars and the women, and I wanted to be down. I would hang around him, and sometimes he'd let me weigh his stuff. I even cut his coke for him a few times. He'd yell at me, you're putting too much in. I couldn't have been more than 16 at the time, and to me, he was the pinnacle. I, I could think, all I could think was, wow, he's doing his thing, and he's getting paid. Drug dealing is negative and destructive, but at the same time, it fulfills some people's dreams and unfortunately is very attractive to a lot of poor black and Latino kids. All they see is the jewelry, the cars, the women, the good times. They see the results, but they don't see the paranoia, the spiritual death, the violence, the betrayal, and the danger that goes hand in hand with drug dealing. You can ask any drug dealer and he would tell you that he would give up all the money to get half that amount legally. All the ones I've ever known wish they didn't have, they didn't have to do it. But back then I was blinded by the so-called wealth. Right before radio dropped, I really, really wanted to get some of that money Big B was making. I didn't think rap was going to bring me the same type of dollars as fast. 
Uh, all the time. I used to yell, Big B, yo, I'm going to give you $5,000. And I was serious. I thought five grand would be enough to get me into the game. He would take my money, buy drugs and flip it, and probably come back with 10 grand in a couple of days. And we keep doing it. 20 grand, 40 grand, 80 grand, 160 grand. I could see all that easy money just rolling in. Before I was able to give him that first $5,000, so he got busted and was sent to jail. I'm not glad he went to jail, because I hate to see any man in lockdown, but I am glad I never got the chance to become a part of the drug scene. God must have been really looking out for me. If Big B's arrest wasn't a strong enough warning, one of my closest friends and rap partners at the time, Kowski, gave up rap to become a full-time drug dealer. About a year later, he was arrested and sentenced to over 20 years in prison. I... Still have love for Kalski, and hopefully he will get out soon and have a real chance to start his life over again positively. I know that some people sit around in their comfortable homes without feeling much sympathy for drug dealers. I know they think a person who makes that kind of lifestyle choice deserves whatever tragedy comes their way. Well, it's true that dealing is a terrible lifestyle, but for some kids, there's not always much of a choice. When I was out there on the edge, I had to get out of my family situation, and I need the fastest escape route possible. I wanted cash. That cash represented power. And there was a lot of it moving through my man Big B's hands. It would have been real easy to start running errands for him for a few dollars, you know, keep an eye open for cops or run this paper bag up the block. And once you're in that scene, you don't get out. Because once you've committed a crime for someone, no matter how small, they got a hook in you for life. They can work you any way they want. The dealer's life has many entrances, but the only two exits are prison and death. Remember that. It's funny. There are a lot of corollaries <clears throat> between the drug game and the rap game. In both cases, young people are looking for power and a voice in a powerless situation. The life of a rap artist coming up at first is similar to that of a dealer or even a wives guy, a, ma a mafioso. You got the knot of cash in your pocket, the cars, the money, the jewelry, the walk... When I did start making some money in the rap game, it was Big B and some other big-time dealers from around the way who put me down with the best-known jeweler in the city, Manny's, in Manhattan's Diamond District. The real deal. It was nothing for me to drop $20,000 on a chain or a ring, just like the big-time dealers. Before then, I bought my gold on Jamaica Avenue. And with the wise guy money and lifestyle could come real wise guy style danger, too. If a rapper's not living right, he's a subject to the same violence. It's such a major part of the underworld. You can get caught up in the same culture, even if you change as a person and start to move away from the lifestyle. Sometimes culture just follows you. The people around you don't change, and you can end up killing yourself for your lifestyle. Of all my tours, the one for Walking in with the Panther was... The most off the hook for me. At the time, it seemed like the most fun I ever had. In hindsight, though, I was at my lowest and my most destructive. My father was my manager then, and he and Cornell used to get high together all the time right in front of me. They used to argue like an old married couple because Cornell used to always return the joint to my father all wet with slobber. Damn, Cornell, you can't smoke a joint without getting spit all over it. Well, shut the hell up, Jimmy. I'm a grown man. Don't be telling me how to smoke a joint. They were hilarious to me then, but they were pretty lousy role models. Every tour seemed like the same story. Drugs and women. I could go into great detail, dime people out, dime myself out. For what? The only thing anyone needs to know, the only thing I learned experimenting with drugs, is that drugs ain't shit. Drugs aren't the answer. I didn't find answers in weed, coke, mescaline, or dust. No answers. Just a question. Why? Why was it when I smoked coke, everybody in the room was my friend? I mean, did all these jerks suddenly turn into great people? I don't think so, but the drugs could make you believe anything. Know what I mean? 
At a time, at a point in time, I even began to do drugs with Cornell. He and I would smoke weed or coke together, and I know he was a real friend, but he did give out stupid advice sometimes. He would say, look, stop walking around the goddamn party sniffing out everybody's dollar bill. Just go get yourself an eighth and do it by yourself. <clears throat> now, what kind of advice is that? It was warped. But he thought he was making us sophisticated. He meant well in his own zany way. If you hang with me today, you'll see what I surround myself with people who don't do drugs. This is a drug-free camp. The most you'll see is allergy medicine. I don't even want beer or alcohol around. You can tell me by my life that it's clean because I'm not getting into trouble anymore. I'm not getting high, getting drunk, and having women all over the place. I don't bring it into my camp, and I don't allow anyone else to. The atmosphere around me now keeps me focused, and I think it's easier for my, for my troops to respect me when they see me conduct myself in a manner that is worthy of respect. I think that's important because it used to be a free-for-all. Everybody was a clown, and so was I. That's why it was so easy for people to rob or play me out. I was too busy getting high and having girls and drinking my little Cristal and my Moet and my Alizé to notice that anything was going on around me. In fact, I was drinking so much Alizé, I was going to name my son Alizé. No joke. Good thing Simone wasn't having it. I'm sure Najee's glad, too. It wasn't easy to get back in control. Somehow I overcame the drugs and the alcohol, but I needed help. I needed strength, and I had to dig down deep inside of myself and find out who I really was and force myself to understand what I saw. Lots of people struggle with drugs and various addictions and don't think they can get out. It's not easy. I didn't come through my trials and tribulations without a scratch either. I have scars, and I've left a few scars on others. Roscoe had turned me into a person I couldn't even say was human. Because I knew nothing but pain. I was inflicting pain and receiving pain. There's a powerful saying in the hip-hop community that is like the hip-hop motto. Keeping it real. You ain't nothing ain't true to the game unless you keep it real. For some, keeping it real is just being you, no matter how negative that was. But I totally disagree with that. I'm sure I grew up and became real. A real man doesn't behave like a savage. I grew up surrounded by people who didn't keep it real. My father, who tried to blast my grandfather and mother into eternity with a shotgun, didn't keep it real. Roscoe, who beat me with a vacuum cleaner attachment, threw me downstairs and blew reefer in my face. He didn't keep it real. But keeping it real ain't about carrying a gun or smoking blunts. It's about being true to yourself and those around you. Taking care of your family and showing respect for others. Being considerate. Men and women who diss and try to kill one another and who abuse drugs and sex ain't keeping it real. You know what I'm saying? Keeping it real, for me, is about staying tight spiritually. You got to keep it real with God. You have to keep it real with your internal self, your essence, with that that which makes you a human being, that some subconscious power that keeps your blood flowing, that makes you blink when you don't even know it, that makes you breathe without having to think about it. That's what you have to keep it real with, righteousness. No, I didn't keep it very real the early part of my career, and I now know that there's a price to pay for not keeping it real. You think it's okay that you get away with that kind of behavior, but it eventually catches up to you. I learned that lesson the hard way, not the right way. There you have it, guys. Words straight from the horse's mouth. You got to keep it real, like LL would say. You know, don't disappoint. I'm loving this book. Uh... Yeah, like I said at the beginning, please leave me comments. Let me know what you're thinking. I, you know, I'm definitely, you know, getting back on the the guest train. I love having the conversations. You know, I do. 
I wouldn't have done upwards of 50 episodes of it if I didn't. Uh, it's just that, you know, my fall schedule is getting insane. And so you can come see me on tour all over the place. Uh, a couple shows I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that haven't been announced for me yet, but I will definitely be there on the East Coast. And then my whole <clears throat> U.S. tour, U.S., Canada, Mexico, uh, U.K., some European shows. Uh, looks like Japan's coming into the works all before Christmas. So, so guys, I'll see you out there. It's going to be fucking fantastic. Um, Till then, have a fantastic week. Uh, Also, this Friday, August 30th, you can find me at the Knitting Factory uh, in in Brooklyn. Midnight show. Son of Stan and rewards are opening. A lot of good friends. It's going to be super fun. Uh, I'm psyched to be back in New York for a few weeks, chilling with you guys while I get ready to go back out and sing for the people. Uh, You know, have a great week. Love each other. Harm our sleepy time. Bye-bye. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf Radio. Boom.com. <laughs> The wolf dead.